G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. We're facing in instability in the market because we don't know how bad inflation is and we don't know what geopolitical influences are going to have on the world. Rates have spiked because of that volatility and the perceived risk within just the overall markets. And because of that instability, there's also indecision because people are waiting for stability to make a decision on how to move forward. My gut, my gut tells me, and what I'm seeing everyone, and what I'm kind of hearing, we're all really hoping that the second half of next year is going to be when, when it all just get, takes off again. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of chatting with an absolute legend and a really good mate of mine, Ryan Parker. Now, Ryan is a real estate debt broker with Walker Dunlop's Capital Markets Division based in Irvine, California. He's just down the road from here, here in Los Angeles. Now, he studied his career as an industrial tenant rep in Los Angeles before transitioning into the real estate capital markets. He, when he's not working, he's riding his horse through Griffith Park or he's at home with his wife and young daughter or hiking and fishing somewhere in California's wilderness. I'm really excited to to have him on the show today to share his incredible knowledge with us. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Ryan. Welcome to the show. How do you today, mate? Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me on, man. 
My pleasure. Now, for Great everyone who's – well, mate, you provided it. I, I just I, I just repurpose it, you know, make yeah. make you sound good. So, ah, But for, for, for everyone who's not aware of you, you and I have been really good friends for a couple of years now. We've actually been yeah. horse riding together. Yeah. Um, but this is your first podcast ever, first yeah. podcast appearance ever, which Truly. hopefully is going to be <laughs> the kickoff to some lucrative career in the podcasting world that you're just going to be the go-to guy for capital markets and debt exactly. advice because, you know, as we know, investing in the US goes around to millions of listeners. <clears throat> um, but it's I, I say it all in tongue-in-cheek because it's it, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I do value your opinion. And for everyone who's listening out there, Ryan is an integral part of uh, the team here at RSN. We, he is a, you know, a go-to advisor in terms of everything to do with debt. Um, and you know, if, if you are interested, we'll, we'll, we'll have all the show notes and his contact at the end of the show. But Ryan, let's get into it. Before yeah. we get into the nuts and bolts of what you're seeing in your crystal ball here in today's market, can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? Uh, my first ever dollar as a kid was made uh, as a horseshoer's apprentice uh, ah. in, uh, in high school. So I, I worked three to four days a week uh, in summers uh, putting shoes on and off horses. And that taught me that I wanted an office job because it is hot in Southern California in summer. And uh, I really loved it, but uh, taught me that I definitely wanted to get in a nice place like this. And for those people listening, it's not literal shoes like tying with shoelaces. It's a, it's yeah. the metal thing that goes on the bottom of the hoof. Um, I also spent uh, back in univ- uh, high school days as well at a thoroughbred racing spelling complex in Australia on the holidays between you know prepping horses for what's called mm. the Magic Millions uh, in Australia, which is the young uh, year colt yearling sale in Australia. It's one of the biggest um, horse breeding uh, in, in the in the racing industry in the world, I believe. Um, this particular stud uh, had prepped horses for it, and I you know spent awesome. time doing everything, including being an apprentice with uh, uh, with, with, with shoeing. Shoeing is backbreaking work, so um, yeah, yeah, but. But awesome. Yeah. Well, mate, walk us through the transition, you know, horses to shoeing to now you're in the capital markets, completely different world. How did you get yeah. there? So uh, I say I slid into capital markets backwards. Uh, I started university wanting to first be a marketing major for General Motors. I thought I was going to market Cadillac to the world. And then uh, I decided I didn't want to do that and got into real estate. So I actually entered the real estate world uh, after, you know, at age 19 and uh, started learning how to sell industrial real estate. That was kind of where it all started. And after that, got into, after college, got into full-time employment as a broker, as you had mentioned, industrial tenant rep uh, in the San Fernando Valley area, specifically of uh, Los Angeles. And in that Learn really learned, I think, the fundamentals of, of what makes good real estate. And that to me is like far more important than what the numbers do. Uh, and now that I've learned the numbers more effectively, we all know that you can make an Excel model what you need it to be. But at the end of the day, you're still buying a real asset that um, is or isn't a good investment. And so being able to understand a properties at the property level was really beneficial to me. And so after a couple of years of really learning that, I got into capital markets in Century City with, with a boutique firm there. And, um, and after a few years there, really learning the capital markets and the debt side and moved into Walker and Dunlop about five years, just over five years ago now, and have been here since. And that really launched the national platform that I'm working on now. So Yep. 
Yeah, that's great. And yeah. we actually have not had anyone on the show in all its history actually talk about industrial. So just for 30 yeah. seconds here, um, high level, you mentioned buying good real estate. In the mm. industrial space, what, what does what does that mean? You know, from is it close to ports? Is it you know population centers? Like, how are you looking at it in terms of buying good dirt? Because I know in multifamily, we 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 know how to buy. We've talked about this on this on this yeah. show a lot. You know, you got to buy. You know, with certain you know household incomes, you want to buy in path of progress. You know, close to transportation hubs. Is it the same with industrial? Yeah, so I have a very unique perspective on industrial because it's Southern California based. So I'll always have the port of Los Angeles uh, and Long Beach, port of Los Angeles and Long Beach as like this anchor point. So there's really no bad investment in the greater Southern California basin for industrial in that regard. But from like a 30 second, what makes good industrial um, is generally proximity to major transportation uh, thoroughfares. Uh, across the United States, so whether that's major highways, major uh, major ports, major rivers, et cetera, you name it, a major railway is another key thing. That's going to help because a lot of distribution, whatever you need is going through a distribution channel, whether you're making something or, or, or distributing something, it needs that. So that's really important. And it can get as granular as multifamily. At the end of the day, it's a concrete cube and how tall you build it and what goes on the inside changes. But uh, and and so I could I could pontificate on that for 20 minutes in terms of what what you want to look at. Um, my personal standpoint, my bread and butter, my favorite industrial asset class is uh, multi-tenant industrial space with the average tenant size under 15,000 square feet because it runs a little bit more like an apartment. Your tenants tend to be a little stickier. You can have a diverse tenant mix that allows you to uh, to protect against any potential market risk for any one particular. Uh, vendor or tenant. And so that's, um, if it were me and I were starting a fund to go buy industrial, I'd let, you know, I'd let all the big guys keep doing what they're doing. And I'd go chase the quiet cinder block built stuff around all across the country that stays consistently occupied. How, how is it in, in now you got me intrigued. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. tenant, tenant rep, right? Right. I, I, I go to a property manager company, property management company and say, hey, you know, fill up my multifamily. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. go online. People need rentals. People need a bed, a roof over their head. In the in the, the industrial world, it, it must look different, right? You've you, you got to go direct to businesses. It's a B2B sort of space and making sure you're putting the right, quote unquote, tenant in there. That's, right. you know, and what's the risk of them getting up and leaving and moving out and paying the right rent? And, you know, you're probably looking at longer term leases. So mm-hmm. how, how does that sort of, again, I don't want to delve too much into it, but like how, how does that, that that work from, you know, make just make sure you're filling up the space in, 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 a, in a timely manner to reduce your mm-hmm. risk if you're buying something, particularly if it's a value add sort of space, like you mentioned, you know, a cinder block, you know, mum and right. pop owned type of, type of space. So how to fill it up quickly, I mean, it's always just the, the lowest lease rate seems to always attract people, but that's not that's not always the best business decision. Uh, industrial rel- sells itself relatively well just because it it's something that people need, businesses need. So as a tenant rep broker, at least in California, we have what's called dual agency, which will allow a real estate broker uh, or real estate agent on the commercial side to represent both the landlord and the tenant on the same transaction. And so I carved a niche for myself by focusing on just tenant side, which an industrial in our market for a long time was kind of unique, at least on the ground level, street level, you want to go corporate services. It's very normal to have a, a you know, CBRE, JLL, Cushman, name it, rep Coca-Cola across the country. And so that's normal, but to have someone 
campaigning for the 2000 square foot cabinet maker or the, you know, the, the precision machining guy or the small distributor of Amazon products uh, was different. So um, I made a name for myself doing that. And how to get the tenant mix in is really what your building will dictate nine times out of 10 who's going to move in. If you have lots of power, you're going to get a lot more manufacturing. If you have higher ceilings, you're going to get more distribution. Uh, mm. If you're, you know, if it's, if you're on a signalized intersection and it's all right, turns into your property, you're going to get more distribution because it's safer for your truck traffic. Uh, how deep your courts are, you know, your truck courts are is going to make, is going to make a difference. And also just what do people need in the neighborhood? If you're looking at something like a smaller mom and pop type multi-tenant industrial space, what's in the area? You know, are, are, is there enough housing to support the kinds of people that are there? Or do, do, you, do you have a lot of smaller kind of call them third party vendors that support a bigger facility down the road? So, you know, like a simple example would be in the San Fernando Valley, it was an aerospace industry market for the longest time. So you'd have Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, and, uh, and Glen Air is another really large aerospace manufacturer that, are, that were out there. And they would need smaller companies for, over, for overruns if they needed to create a lot of product quickly or a specialized product. So you had a lot of that support. So that, that's kind of what drives it. But I mean, I can go into more detail if you no, want. No, it's, 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 it could be a whole podcast on its own. And yeah, we, might need to get, we might need to get you back because I haven't yeah. actually covered industrial. We covered self-storage okay. a lot, but industrial has definitely been the sort of the new – the new girl on the block, so to speak, coming out of you know the yeah. the the, the reset, not not reset, coming out of COVID. It was multifamily and industrial. Everyone seems yeah. to be flocking to that as people are staying at home. Are you still seeing that being the bell of the ball right now? Industrial, I, I absolutely think industrial is and multifamily are still the bell of the ball. Uh, industrial was the the dirty little secret that everyone in the industry knew, <laughs> but but like Wall Street still was like, yeah, it seems cool, but I don't know if we're there yet. Uh, it's a concrete cube, as I said, and 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 turnover on the simplest degree is really just sweeping the floor and putting a fresh coat of paint and carpet. And that's technically like the bare minimum you could do to turn an industrial building. There's obviously a lot more to that. Uh, but, um, and so I think that's when everyone realized that this is a simpler puzzle to solve and a simpler asset class to, to manage per se than, you know, a 300 unit multifamily property where you have 300 individuals that are living there and have, uh, it's a personal decision on some capacity for your tenant mix in an apartment because it's their home and it's a business decision in industrial. But yeah, industrial is still the bell of the ball. It's still, I would say from what I'm hearing and I'm not, in, you know, I'm not in it day to day, like a true industrial broker, but everything I'm seeing from the capital side and what all, all my, you know, all my friends and colleagues and clients in that space, uh, and what I see, um, I would not describe industrial as, as hot as the sun anymore, but you're probably somewhere around Mercury or Venus in terms of your exposure to the sun. I mean, it's still extremely hot. It's just, it's just, a, it's a little cool, right? Cooling right now, but mm -hmm. cooling, but still hot to the touch is what I'm trying to say here. It's still yeah, an incredible yeah. place to go invest. Well, it's, it's a good segue because I think a lot of things are cooling, right? Well, let's, let's yeah. get into, you know, the debt markets right now. So maybe, Give us your 30-second take on – we did a whole state of the webinar last week yeah. with RSN, and it was, you know, it was our, our opinion on, on where the markets have come from, where they're headed. But give us your, your close to the coalface in terms of you know, producing debt, you know, originating debt on, on, a, on a wide uh, slew of different product yeah. in the commercial world. How has this year been in terms of just – momentous swings away from the sun, so to speak, uh, in, in, in the bells of the balls of like the multifamilies and, and the industrials uh, spaces of the world? 
Yeah, so I would say that uh, this year has been wild. It started off with a bang. Everyone was energetic. And then obviously with uh, inflationary pressure, instability geopolitically, uh, the world changed dramatically. And But from, from a 30-second standpoint, to summarize this year and call it the next 24 months, uh, we're, we're facing in, instability in the market because we don't know how bad inflation is. And we don't know what geopolitical influences are going to have on the world. Rates have spiked because of that volatility and the perceived risk within just the overall markets. And because of that instability, there's also indecision because people are waiting for stability to make a decision on how to move forward. Yeah. My, gut, my gut tells me and what I'm seeing everyone and what I'm kind of hearing, we're all really hoping that the second half of next year is going to be when, when it all just get, takes off again. It's not going to be 2020. It's not going to be 2021. Um, if you're trying to make your business decisions, assuming that the rates are going to be at zero again, that's probably not the best thing to do to put it politely <laughs> because it, that was a once in a lifetime catch and uh, people made a lot of hay when they could, but that's not normal. So you should not, uh, you should not drive your business decisions, assuming that that will return. Mm. No, it, it, it's very, it has been very interesting um, to see this momentum swing away from just how hot a lot of spaces were. You know, obviously, I'm, we're, we're deep in it with multifamily. You know, how you're getting sub three caps going in, but you're getting dead at three and a half caps. So it sort of really made sense. And now we're expanding so much. You're going a Fed rate of from zero to nearly probably, it's projected to be over 5% next Q1 next year. It's a fivefold in less than 12 months. That's, mm-hmm. that's a, it's going to have a massive impact, right? It's going to yeah. be a big handbrake on the market. So you mentioned earlier about, you know, just uh, uncertainty and instability. You know, I, I know I talk a lot about we can, we as investors, we can make money in any market. We just need to know the rules. And I think that instability is coming out because we don't know the rules, right? So how are you hearing from other operators and brokers? Is it quiet out there? Is it stagnant? A deal's just not getting done because seller expectations and debt markets just aren't aligning, thus Deals aren't aren't you know, you're either you either got it at a good basis and you're holding, or are you still seeing deals getting done and they're just getting done because of you know panic or because of um, that, that that people are starting to get you know, you know underwater so to speak. Right, I haven't heard much on the underwater side of things. I, I, I would say to instill confidence in everyone listening, the market's still very liquid. There's a lot of cash in the system on both the investor side and the capital side. So. We at this point are not seeing a liquidity crisis that like of the likes of 2008. So that's a really positive thing. Uh, and also, underwriting parameters in general uh, have t- have become far better than they were that that what led to 2008. So, and the great financial crisis. So that's a positive. Um, deals are still getting done. It it's still a very busy market. There's still it's. I think where where deals have shifted is that the repeat. A refi business where someone signed a deal up at 5% five years ago and they can take it out at three and a half, you know, call it the beginning of the year, that's gone, obviously. Uh, really, rates are, are they're high, but they're not wildly different than where we kind of saw what we, or what some people felt the high watermark was in within the last, you know, 20 years. I mean, we, we've, been, we've seen deals that had seven coupons and six coupon rates. Uh, five and a half, and frankly, the market can operate healthily and, and and really well with interest rates, all in interest rates on long-term fixed-rate debt somewhere between four and a half and five, in my opinion. Uh, 
I obviously want to see it lower, but that's that's very reasonable. We're still in this pricing discovery mode. You're seeing it with RSN as you're as you're out competing on deals. Other people are seeing it too. That there's sellers that still think they can get the same price that they got at the beginning of the year right now, when even though the cost of capital is up truly exponentially, and that's that's unrealistic, and that has to change. And I think it will change uh, just because if people want to transact, then they have to adjust. The transactions that are occurring now are a lot of I'd say a lot of 1031 investors that are not, that, that need to need to deploy capital because they've sold an asset and need to put it somewhere and want to avoid tax ramifications for that. Also, on an institutional level, a lot of funds that are out and have and have uh, are required to deploy capital by the end of the year or are required to put out a certain amount of money are 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 driving volume as well. And there's still some opportunities out there. It's not to say that that the market's toast and you can't find opportunity. I think there's plenty of opportunity. It's just harder. It's been easy. I, I hate to say it, but the last five to six years has been really easy in the capital markets, you know, and, and in investing in real estate. So it it you have to you have to really show how you're going to add value and not take, you know, not be the the fifth guy in four years to buy the the value add piece because the first guy did ten units and proved it and upped it twenty five k a unit and the guy other guy did twenty five. You know, you've seen that read and so. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's where the market's headed is is in a really positive direction. Uh, It's Mm. scary right now, but overall, it's going to be positive. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you'll automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. Uh, are you seeing people shift away from the floating rate, high octane stuff into fixed rate product? More so, yes. That That's a product of a couple of things. Um, rate cap costs are still really expensive. Uh, for listeners that don't know, you basically, you can you, you pay a, a certain dollar amount to cap what your interest rate will be on a floating rate loan. And because the yield curve was, is still pretty aggressive, through at least the middle of next year, there's uh, that cost is high. So you used to get the pricing benefit of, oh, I'll take floating rate and it might be you know a little less, maybe a little more, but I got the flexibility. There's a lot of pieces of that puzzle. But now you're paying one and a half to 2% on a three-year loan to just cap the cost of the loan. So add that to your starting, I mean, you're, basically your point of cost of capital increases that way. Uh, there's also less floating rate debt in a way because when this, this this level of instability, a lot of the floating rate lenders that that competed with with lines of credit and warehouse lines, and not basically having some of their own money, using that money to get a line to then a levered line to then borrow more and deploy more, those lines are going away. Excuse mm. me. And so, um, unless they have a really strong balance sheet, they're kind of hesitant to enter the market. So. That's one of the reasons why there's just less floating rate debt out there is there's less floating rate out there. So mm. that kind of happens. And a fixed rate product, it reduces your leverage standpoint, but it's predictable. And I think that's what people want right now. Everything seems so unpredictable. So if I can at least have a predictable debt you know, cost of capital for the next two to three years, so be it. I have to raise a little bit more equity, but I, 
I know what my return's going to be. And I think that that's making people more comfortable. Yeah, I completely agree. As we're looking at deals in real time right now, we're only looking at fixed rate debt. And you've you obviously been looking yeah. at a ton of stuff for us and, and just trying to you know adjust the seller's expectations of what we can pay for. And, and I think- yeah. Um, yeah, we're still we're still hot and heavy on the value add space, but I talked a lot about the arbitrage, and and you're probably seeing a lot of arbitrage well between like what's your going in cap rate versus interest rates, and probably historically, you could allow for fifty to seventy five bips because yeah. you believed in your business plan. Today, with the increase, you can't sell at a four cap and try to get rates at a six and a half cap. It just doesn't work. The business plan doesn't work. You need no. it to you need it to readjust. So, um, very 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 interesting. What what I wrote down here and and and. One of the cardinal rules that we do here at RSN is we've never underwritten to a refi, right? We don't, we want it up the sleeve if we can have it, but we've never done it. We, you know, over the sort of seven, eight years I've been, I've been in this business, never done it, but have executed on it. And it's just the, the, the ace up the sleeve. Given where the debt markets are today, are you seeing more people coming in at that lower leverage today and then knowing and, and having confidence that the capital markets will be different in two to three years, thus justifying a refi scenario in their models. Is, is, that, is that changing at all for you in, in the conservatism, not conservatism? Because we are, you know, I'm seeing leverages points at, you know, as low as 50, 60%, you know, on, on some deals. It's like, I know, and if I believe in the business plan, I know I'm going to be able to improve that value. Thus, I want to go capture some of that value. And to your point earlier, like, you might just have to saddle up with a, a fixed rate debt today. You're raising more money, but is there an opportunity down the line? And do you believe personally that there's an opportunity to come in and do a refi in two or three years' time because we will be a little bit more, quote, unquote, stable in the market and we understand the rules to play by? Absolutely. I think one of the things that, uh, gosh, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this appropriately here. Short of it, you know, uh, I need a, need a minute here. I want to make sure that I, that I process it correctly. I think that refi business is always a good part of, of your of your analysis, and it's good to hear that, that you're doing more of it. It's and part of that is, is that's a downside risk analysis. So if you can't sell it at the price at which you think you could, because cap rates have blown out, which we're kind of seeing now, uh, then it's good to have you know the refi opportunity available. So it's nice to see that people that, that, that people do that. I think more people are looking at it, and yes, certainly there's there's a lot. I'm hearing a lot more people trying to put their cart on the horse that believes rates will decline in the next two to three years than um, stay stable. So that is that is that kind of processing a little bit? Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, it's just it's just an interesting uh, you know between different operators. I just don't know if you're seeing. Models come through your on your desk and say, "Hey Ryan, I'm, I want to get the fifty or sixty percent leverage today because that's I'm just trying to back into the lowest interest rate fix possible." But right. I am planning to, you know, get these local you know credit lenders out or the local banks out in two or three years' time, and my business plan is to try and get you know from a call it a six fix today. I, I'm hoping it's down to you know five and a quarter in two yeah. years' time, and I can pull out maybe ten to fifteen percent equity. Right to to bring my leverage back up to sort of a um, call it a sixty five percent leverage, you know, typical of what you've seen prior to sort of this year. That was sort of the the, the question. Is more of that coming across your desk? Yeah, definitely. I think that more, and I also think that's because the market is in a position now where we're not just riding the wave anymore. Mm. Like you're, the value that you're adding is actual value. 
uh, not that you weren't before, not that and I'm not saying you specifically, but the market in general, there was, you could, there, people in the value add space could, could demonstrate a little bit about added value. Then it would be overbid knowing that there's even more future value and, and more and more and more. That's kind of stopped, at least for what I'm seeing. And I sense what you're probably seeing as well. So now people are like, okay, let's, let's see what, like, let's go ahead and move rents to just market to where they are today. And, and that can be our value add and not assume mm. that we're going to get 20% rent growth in the next three to five years. You know, maybe we pop it 10 to 15 the first year and then three to four each year thereafter. And, and that's a little bit more realistic. And so that is true added value because you know, at the end of the day, you are increasing net operating income and is long, you know, and, and if you believe that cap rates are going to stay where they're at or even increase a little bit, you're going to make up for it in value just by the fact that you actually did create more cash flow for the property and didn't just upsell it at a greater cost, you know, deal per, you know, cost per unit because uh, that's where the market was at at the time. So I think that in that you will inherently get good refi debt because your cash flow is improved. So mm-hmm. if you're taking your cash flow from A to B and B is higher than A, uh, you're going to get more, you're going to get better capital. You might, you not, I mean, you might not even increase your LTV. Technically you could still go from like a 55 to a 55 LTV, but it's just that the value of the properties increase. So you're not having to go from like 55 to 75, you know, if, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. What are you seeing with those guys at locked in rates, you know, two years ago and, you know, at a certain leverage, maybe high octane and then trying to come and refine today's market because there must be some blood coming. Yeah, there there should be <laughs> in some way. Uh, yes and no. So, uh, yeah, the guys that, that, you know, went ahead and got a LIBOR plus 275 loan three years ago or two years ago when LIBOR was 18 basis points and now LIBOR's, you know, well, we're at SOFR now and SOFR's, I think, pushing four today. Uh, and their underwritten exit rate was, you know, three seventy five. They're going to run into some issues. But if they've added the value, I think there's an opportunity for a refi. They also have a lot of these people have extensions on their loans, mm. so that's going to help. Um, I, I don't. I guess my gut on it is is that yes, there's certainly going to be some opportunity for distressed assets. There, at any point, it, there are those that got too aggressive, missed the business plan, and were over their skis and and are. And now have to throw what we say is throw the keys back, which is you know, lender takes the property back uh, because there is no other way to be, to solve that, or they're they're going to sell the asset before it gets to that point and just take take a break even or a little bit of a loss, so that way they're protecting their reputation and not having to uh, be known as someone that is willing to default and foreclose on a property. The 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 financial markets, at least from the banks that I've talked to um, and, and others, they don't want to do that. At the end of the day, most lenders don't want to have to take the keys back and, and process mm. that. So from a like, oh, it's going to be 2008 again, and there's going to be all this bank-owned real estate and lender-owned real estate, and where they're going to offload it on fire sales, my gut tells me that's not going to happen because everyone did that at the last time, and they really hated it. It was it, it is a process to 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 do that. And so if they could, if they believe that you know, like if everyone believes that the second half of 23 is going to start things off again. Or, and that markets are going to stabilize, they're going to do the best, lenders are going to do the best that they can to not do that. So whether that's a loan modification, an extension, you name it. I mean, I'm working with a client right now that he's moving from a fixed rate product to a floating rate product because there was a five-year fix that moved to a float. And his, his cost of capital is, 
is going up by 300 basis points. And wow. That's, that's substantial. Mm. Uh, and he, none of us could have planned for that um, three or four years ago. But, uh, you know, now I'm here helping him and, and the bank is saying, you know what? We don't have to move it to amortizing and at the higher rate. I mean, it'll have to move to a higher rate. We just won't, we won't amortize it. We'll give them a couple years IO, help them weather the storm hmm. and hope things will stabilize again. And that's an example of, of, of try of a bank that e- very easily could have said, deal with it, it, pay me, pay yeah. me my money. And if you can't give me the keys and we're going to go sell it, they're looking at it too and not going, well, if value is, has decreased, then we're going to take a loss. So why not just keep getting that return? Mm. Not exactly how we wanted it. Why not keep getting that 6% you know, interest rate now or whatever, 5% interest rate now and, and riding that for a few years and then seeing where the situation is. That's so, interesting you bring that up because I think rates have sh- shifted so much. Cap rates have shifted, thus yeah. values have shifted. And real estate is not a stock ticker, but if it was, you could argue that, yeah, what you bought 12 months ago isn't worth what it is today. Mm-hmm. Right, which means you're underwater. Yeah, and so you just talk, just just walk people through that and how the banks see that because it isn't a stock tick. They're not saying, well, today you're worth less than what you bought it 12 months ago, and that's not necessarily your fault because it's all tied into how quickly you can increase the business plan. You mentioned earlier, you you got to go add value. Well, if interest rates have risen five five times in 12 months, I know you can't implement your business plan that quickly. So there has to be, and what I'm hearing is that there has to be a little bit of give and take there. Like lenders aren't being like, we're going to smack you over the back of the head. You bought too high. The market's now shut the bed. It's now worthless. You know, it sounds like they're wanting to work with people in order to just like, let's ride it out together. Let's take a breath. And we know we're all in this, we're all in this boat together. So let's not panic. (laughs) Yeah, de- definitely seeing that, and it, yeah, in the sense that as cap rates move, you know, you have obviously the news are change in value, and and so you have a million dollars in NOI at a four cap, it's going to be different than at a five cap, than at a six cap, than at a three cap. We all get that, uh, but that's if you're going to transact and you're actually looking to sell the property. You, if, as long to me. At least in my viewpoint, and I'm pretty simple, simplistic in this way. If your debt, if if your if your net operating income can still service your monthly mortgage payment, uh, in the short term, great. As a lender, I'm like fantastic. Uh, <laughs> you know, this isn't exactly what I wanted, but if you can still pay your mortgage every month, then that's a positive. And if you can't, let's try and figure out what we can do. To, to solve around that rather than immediately go default foreclosure key mm. fire sale sorry no one wants to do that at least That's i can't say no one uh, they're, mm. they're they're out there and there's plenty of them and, and i get it but the the sense of it is is that there's a lot more as you said let's come alongside and work together so that none of us have to deal with the worst case scenario Awesome. Yeah, look, wait, I could talk to you for hours, honestly. We, we, yeah. we, we do as, as friends. But the one, yeah. one question I wrote down here is I know Walker Dunlop has an incredible platform of their own. Yeah. You know, for those listeners out there, they do, Walker does their own podcast and have got into the sort of the podcasting realm and they interview some really big heavy hitters. But what are you hearing internally? Obviously, you don't have to tell us any secrets, but what are you hearing on your internal calls about the market, the war, inflation? You know, coming into 2023, what is what's what's the big dogs talking about on on these phone calls? Right. So you can certainly listen to uh, we have it recorded. Uh, Walker and Dunlop's 
uh, third quarter earnings call, we'll give you a great perspective on how our CEO, Willie Walker, is looking at planning for the future, what his anticipations are and expectations are. And so that's going to be a really good piece of color there. Like anyone in the commercial real estate industry right now, things have slowed down. And that, that's, that's no secret. Uh, volumes are, are less. And what, you know, what's that look like? Internally, we're not panicked. We're not scared. Uh, you can see our servicing portfolio that, that you know, we have, we have good income. We have good cash coming into the company. So from like a corporate Walker and Dunlop standpoint, there's not a lot of panic. That being said, any leadership needs, you know, obviously has to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So there's, there's always going to be those analyses of, okay, if, if, um, if we don't get that stabilization in, 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 you know, the second half of next year, well, what's that look like? So there's, there's certainly planning for that, but over, overall, I can tell you that at least internally at Walker and Dunlop, things are extremely optimistic. We're still doing well with, with our, with our overall volumes. I, if I remember correctly, I think our 2022 year to date is somewhere like in excess of $30 billion in transaction volume, I believe for the, for the third quarter, if I remember that correctly. Um, but mm-hmm. again, I could provide, I, I can send stuff after the fact for you to, to send to your listeners so they can see. So volumes are, 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 are off, but that's because they're off of uh, where we were at the January 2022, where everyone thought things were going to continue in that pattern. So of course, there's going to be a natural transition and, and that happens. But yeah, internally, we're optimistic. Our investment sales platform still really busy uh, doing a little bit more BOV work right now than they did before, that's, which is broker opinion of value for those that don't know. That's, that's normal when things start to slow down. People start to reassess, hey, what is my property actually worth now? Does it make sense to make a sale? We're doing a lot of refi analysis, believe it or not, uh, even though I said that market slowed down. Part of the reason why is, um, is that with, with yield maintenance and defeasance prepayments, those, those were expecting a certain return at a certain coupon rate. And now that interest rates have risen, it's dramatically reduced people's prepayment penalties on those loans. So there, there is some motivation to go, hey, could I, could, I, could I get some cash and maybe take a little hit now to, to keep that dry powder if the market were to really turn uh, or reinvest it as, as things start to ignite again. So overall, we're, we're really optimistic with, with where the future is. Obviously, we're kind of looking around and like everyone else, but positive, very positive. And that's optimistic, not only just from Walker Dunlop's perspective, but, but from the economy's perspective as well. Is that, is that right by saying? Yeah, I would. I mean, personally, I mean, again, I'm not an economist. You can listen to Linneman <laughs> on the Driven by Insight podcast. He'll tell you what's going on, uh, you know, and, and what what his thoughts are on that. But <clears throat> from from an outsider looking in at like the global economy, right, which is yeah, something I am not paid enough to. I'm not even paid <laughs> to do that. I'm paid. I'm paid to broker debt. I'm not paid to, to pontificate on the global economy. But I can tell you that with that, uh, the last week has shown us, I think, what's going to happen. You know, you saw CPI go from or inflation go from like 8.4 to 7.6, I think was the exact number, but you saw a decrease, right? We're still in an inflationary world, but it's not as high as it was. And the markets responded resoundingly well. Everyone was like, let's go. Treasuries drop, markets are up, Dow's, you know, like mid 30,000s again. Everyone's fired up. Uh, now, granted, things are kind of climbing back, but I think that's just more of an indication that we're all waiting. Like, there's all this cash, and everyone's <laughs> sitting here waiting for the Fed to slow down their rate hikes and go, okay, let's sit flat for like six months. And everyone's going to go, great. We know what it's a, what it is. Let's make a run at it. So that's my sense is that everyone's waiting by the sidelines with a lot of cash in hand to, to, to get it, get back in. Yep. Get the rules of the game yeah. understood. 
or see some freaking forest bet- between the trees, uh, so we yeah. the trees between the forest, whatever the way to talk about it. But just get to, un- to get to a point where we know where we're headed and we see the light at the end of the tunnel and we understand the rules to play by to go out and yeah. you know start making uh, sand- start making sandcastles in the sandpit. So with that being said, my friend, let's dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Ooh, okay, yeah. That it's five questions, semi lightning round. That you're unprepared for this as your first podcast ever episode recorded. You're doing freaking fantastic. Thanks. Question question number one is, tell me how you keep on track. What's a daily habit you, you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I just started something that I call the five a.m. club. And mm-hmm. so I uh, want to make sure that I'm up at 5 a.m. every morning and I get kind of reading and prayer out of the way and uh, not out of the way. That's actually a really important thing to help center my day. It, it reminds me of my perspective on, on what, what I want out of this life and how to get there. And then that helps me start every day fresh, clean and focused. Love it. Love it. Question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career? Ooh. Wow. Most influential person in my career. I've had a lot of people that have influenced me from, I'll give, I mean, I'm going to name drop here to shout out some of my favorite. Like Cameron Merrill took me on my first, at CBRE took me on my first cold call at 19. Um, let's see here. Uh, Gary Tenzer at George Smith Partners given me a chance to even get into the capital markets as an industrial broker. And then even where I'm at right now, uh, my senior partner, Greg Richardson, believing in me and supporting me and, and doing what he can to be successful. So, I mean, those are, those are the guys that have been, you know, the people in my life that have been really influential on helping me grow and, and taking a chance on, on taking a chance on me. So, That's awesome. You, yeah. you got to have people to take a chance on you, right? You're, particularly when you're yeah. starting out green and, and shout out to the boys there. So, yeah. um, yeah, well, I hope, hope yeah. they will get, get a listen to the episode and uh, tell, t- tell them to listen to minute 38 and they'll get a shout out. So. <laughs> yeah, listen to nothing else. <laughs> I did really, really well on the lightning round. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Question number three is, what's the most important tool that you use in your business? And when I say a tool, it could be a physical tool like a notepad, which I can't mm. run the business without, or it could be a piece of software that you just you can't run the business without. What is that, that influential tool in your business? Gosh, uh, I mean, Obviously, Excel. I mean, without that's like, I mean that's that's the obvious answer, right? I mean, I mean, in finance, so Excel is pretty is pretty important. But from a from a standpoint outside of that, gosh, we and I mean the big name Salesforce for that. But like a simple tool that I, that I use every day is I also have a notepad or a to do list, and I write down the people that I need to make sure I call by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And something as simple as that, and, and making sure that you follow up in that capacity really helps. Uh, commercial mortgage alert for people. If they're <laughs> like curious about some literature, commercial mortgage alert is something that we get weekly that gives you an idea of kind of where Wall Street's head is at on, on a lending standpoint. And that's really good to know and really good to have. Uh, you know, go ahead and hype, hype the Walker webcast driven by Insight on you know, Spotify. That, that's a great way to kind of just get luminaries from all sorts of areas. And, uh, and then again, another proprietary, something a little bit more proprietary as well. Internally, we have a lot of technology that allows us to analyze real estate on a very, very deep level, um, which we, which has been fantastic. And it's something that I use every day when I help consulting clients in terms of what, you know, how to look at refis versus old scenarios, uh, expense comp for you and multifamily. We've got like two million units in our servicing portfolio, I believe, and that's all data that we can use. So that, that's really powerful stuff. 
and um but but for the common person that doesn't have access i mean not common person but just for, for people that don't have access to what i have at walker and dunlop uh remove all of the talking heads rem- remove as i'm sitting here trying to be one uh and doing a just, great job yeah just, just look look at 30-day term sofer and look at the 10-year treasury those are the two indexes that the vast majority of our industry is based on whether really tied to that index or loosely and that'll kind of communicate roughly where where markets are headed so yeah awesome stuff question number four is in one sentence what's been the biggest failure that you've learned from in your career what would you take away biggest failure man i never fail no (laughs) yeah no that's not true uh the biggest failure i would say is um wasting my time on tasks and transactions um and and the pursuit of information that um, i guess the long story short qualifying in my industry you know in my world you need to be able to qualify quickly and you need to be able to look at a deal understand it fit quickly and so my biggest failure was that early in my career i spent too much time chasing that pipe that that pipe dream deal that like if everything just worked right i know it'll happen and frankly every deal is that way but you need to be able to realistically look quickly so i'd say my biggest failure had been that is just not um not learning that faster yeah i love it but it comes with with time and experience yeah. right yeah so exactly it's, it's, it's hindsight 2020 yeah, and I and I and I needed that. I'm not saying that that was a negative. Yeah, in the moment it felt like a negative because I, felt, you know, because uh, why is nothing working? But I had to do that in order to find out what does and make sense of it all. Awesome, so, yeah. awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, last question is: Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. They want to have you on speed dial. Where do they go just to to reach out? Gosh, to reach out. I mean, LinkedIn's always a good space. Uh, you can certainly provide that. I can give straight up my contact information. I mean, uh, you know, my email what's address. A, what's a, yeah, what's a good email address yeah. for you? Email address is rparker at walkerdunlop.com. And, you know, and phone office line's 949-208-8446. I mean, call me. I'll pick up. I'm not, you know... <laughs> As long as you're not trying to extend my car warranty, I'm, I'm set. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the best place. <laughs> awesome stuff, man. Well, look, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I just want to share some of the, the you know the awesome piece, pieces of advice that you you've really given out, and, and and kudos for your first podcast. You did you, you absolutely crushed it. But you know, taking away, I think your in depth knowledge. You're a guy that I obviously know personally, and, and you've really been able to develop a good niche into what you 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 want to become in terms of you want to become a really good adversary for your clients in terms of the debt markets and what is the best debt to come by and and, and for us, you know any product from industrial to multi family to you know, might be mobile home parks. Um, I also think you, 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 you talk a lot about you know, the geopolitical instability and, and, and stuff that coming in around that how do we plan better for the future and how does that tie into refis and how does that tie into what we're doing from a day-to-day as a business owner when we're outgoing looking at these deals um, you know, day in, day out. So I think providing that context around how you think about the deal in order to you know, give that value back to your clients to then make help them make the right decision is pretty much one of your superpowers, I think. So, um, did I leave anything out? No, that's it. Yeah, I just I try and provide the downside risk scenario and help people, you know, see that and make a decision on on that. You know. Yep. Yep. That's awesome stuff. Yeah. Look again. Thank you so much for taking some time hey. out of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll catch up yeah. very very soon. You too. Thanks for having me, Reed. 
My pleasure. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from my mate, Ryan Parker. He did an awesome job on his first ever podcast. Definitely go back and re-listen to the entire episode because he's got some golden nuggets in there. If you do want to reach out to him, he's on LinkedIn. He's a guy that you need to have in your back pocket on the speed dial when it comes to debt markets and what's happening day in, day out. I use him probably on a monthly basis, just giving him a call, understanding what's going on when he's got his finger on the pulse. So definitely check him out over at walkerdunlop.com. If you like, this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. We're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. 